0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. We should all be mindful of that heritage we have in this country of the freedom to worship. It is a very precious thing and one that I fear we may take for granted We may not have the opportunity to take it for granted too much longer if things continue along the path that they are, but I think that's something we should continually pray about and thank God for just the freedom to be able to come here and worship. There are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ spread out across the globe who do not have the freedom to come here without fear of persecution in a very acute sense. So let's not squander the opportunities we have to worship God. It's true that when we are in abundance we tend to play fast and loose. If you got a bunch of money in your wallet, you're probably a little less worried about, you know, we're gonna buy hot dogs and hamburgers for everybody. I've got the money to cover all this stuff. But when money is tight, you tend to start thinking more about, well, it's precious that we have what we have and we need to be careful about how we parcel it out. Well, we have a lot of opportunity to worship God in this world and we should not become cavalier about our abundance of opportunity to worship God, we should take advantage of it as best we can. I have an idea on my mind today. I wrote an article this week or published one on the website called Regarding TULIP, and it was just some thoughts about the TULIP acronym. And I had a fair amount of feedback from people through various means about that article and about the concept of TULIP and what we believe and how important that is and So I thought today I'd take up the TULIP doctrine. And as I began to look at this, I realized there's a little more complexity in understanding the story of how TULIP developed. And there's things that you might hear out there in the Christian marketplace about TULIP, and they're not entirely correct. And so I kind of wanted to step us through a little bit of a history lesson regarding how that acronym came about and how we as Primitive Baptists relate to that acronym and how we've used it in the past, and then to talk a little bit about what's in the article, briefly stated in the article, about how I think we should consider TULIP. So I'm going to start out by giving a little bit of a history lesson here on what TULIP is. It is an acronym that represents, each letter represents five of the core doctrines of what we would call the doctrine of salvation by grace, right? When you hear people say TULIP, They're using it as shorthand for they believe in salvation by grace. You might hear other people say they believe in sovereign grace. Those terms are used kind of interchangeably. They believe sovereign grace, they believe tulip, they believe sovereign grace theology, right? The doctrines of grace. Those are all kind of used interchangeably for one another. And it is a helpful tool to remember those five doctrines, And it's particularly helpful to the extent that those five doctrines are properly defined in them, right? And we'll talk a little bit about that. That acrostic has Reformation origins. In other words, the word tulip is not in the Bible, nor is that acrostic represented in Scripture and defined in these ways. Some of the terminology used there is not explicitly found in the Bible, right? However, the concepts when they are biblically defined they are found in the Bible. So this acrostic has Reformation origins and many people refer to it as the five points of Calvinism, that's how TULIP is generally regarded. So know that. As far as the broader Christian world is concerned they tend to in a very coarse manner say, there are Calvinists and there are Arminians, and you're either one or the other, It's kind of how much of Christianity views the world. Now that's a very coarse cut at the Christian faith, to talk about it that way. You might think of it this way, when I was in uh, studying history in college, my college professor, we were just studying European history really, and he would make this point that, you know, They didn't really think about the world back then. If you were living in Italy, for example, they didn't think about the world as being, well, I'm living in Europe, and these people over here are living in North Africa, and they're in a different continent, right? And over here is the Middle East, and that's a different, that's part of Asia. And they didn't really think about it in terms of those different continental divides that we talk about when we talk about the continents. In fact, they used to say, think of this as the Afro-Eurasian landmass, right and the mediterranean was kind of the super highway that just connected a lot of these different places and they just thought about it as you know we're all kind of we got these different cities and nations and things that are around it but we're not really thinking in terms of continents so much uh, the way we do so if you think about if someone were to describe the globe in a very coarse take on planet earth you might say well there's three big land masses Most of you are going to say, oh, that's not right. Aren't there seven continents, you know? Um, Well, there's kind of three landmasses, right? He used to describe the Afro-Eurasian landmass. That's all one big thing. It's humongous. It's where most of the land is. And it's all kind of connected to each other, and those societies all interacted with one another. Then there's the whole North and South America landmass that's connected And then there's Australia kind of sitting down there by itself. So there's three land masses on planet Earth is kind of how you could describe it. Technically not true from a continental plate tectonic standpoint, but you see that it has that kind of coarse way that you could look at it and talk about it in that way. In the same way, people look across Christianity and they say, well, there's broadly, you know, Calvinists and Arminians." Well, okay, kind of, there's kind of people who believe the doctrines of grace and there's people who don't. That's true, but there's a whole lot more that you could enter into there that sort of makes that a very coarse take on how you would divide Christianity. But know this: if you are a citizen of Asia and someone says, well you're part of one of the great three land masses, you might be somewhat offended by that. You say, no, I'm 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 an Asian. I came from the Asian continent. Well, people are kind of lumping you in with this thing that's kind of all connected to one another. And so it's a coarse take. I guess I'm really trying to, to warn you that you'll be lumped in with the tulip crowd, and they say tulip is the five points of Calvinism, and then what's the next thing out of their mouths? Therefore, you must be a Calvinist, right? That's the thing I'm saying. We're going to get lumped into that based on a coarse view of Christianity. And we have our reasons why we make distinctions there. But if you're just looking at it from that perspective, you're going to get lumped in there. So just know that. So where did this tulip acrostic come from? Many people say, well, it's the five points of Calvinists. The Calvinists came up with that. They just sat down one day and said, here's our five points. But that's really not how the story played out. Uh, Let me give you a little Reformation history here. 1517, Luther tacked the 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. That was kind of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And Luther was someone who had been a very devout Catholic and had tried to press into a lot of their doctrines. And at that time they were teaching something called indulgences, which is basically you can pay in advance for the sins you want to go commit. Right. So you can... It's basically pay your way into heaven is what it boils down to. It's a very crass form of works-based religion that directly ties you know, your practice of sin and your forgiveness of sin to your financial contribution to the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, that's clearly unscriptural, unsound. And Luther had studied enough of the Bible to recognize that's not right. The Bible didn't teach that. Now I don't agree with Luther on a whole lot of things that he talked. But I'll say this, he was right about that. And I admire Martin Luther because he had guts. He had convictions about this thing. He knew that was wrong and he was willing to stand up to the Roman Catholic Church at a time where that could literally put you in fear of being put to death. It was no laughing matter at all to stand up to the errors of Roman Catholicism. So Luther's uh, bold move in 1517 kind of started the Reformation. And that started a whole host of other activities. Uh, You know, John Calvin was born in 1509. He died in 1564. And his ministry through the middle of the 1500s there kind of developed the Reformation theology that we now kind of come to know as Calvinism, broadly speaking, In the 1540s, in response to all this trouble that was coming out of these reformers who were trying to make changes to the church, the Roman Catholic Church, through Ignatius of Loyola, you've heard of Loyola University, those Catholic institutes, uh, that's where that comes from, they started the Society of Jesus, which is commonly known as the Jesuits, So they were the sort of the counter-Reformation. Other people, okay, we got this problem going on with the Reformation. We need to kind of be in here. And they were kind of doing some reforming activities within the Catholic Church as well, trying to take some of the heat off of the matter that was being applied to them from the Reformers. So he had all this rich stuff going on in there. In 1560, a man named Jacobus Arminius was born, and he lived until 1609. Now, most of you are familiar with the idea of you've heard people say, well, there are Arminians over there. They believe that. Well, that term is going back to Jacobus Arminius, who was a promoter of a particular type of theology that's called Arminian theology, right? And it's kind of in that coarse view of the world, it's what opposes tulip or Calvinism in the broader view of things, right? So... He's the one who came up with the five points originally, but his five points were not TULIP. So he had the five articles, which were known as the Remonstrance, which was in 1610. He'd actually died in 1609. So his followers kind of went on and, and published this as a formal work. The five articles of the Remonstrance. Okay. Now listen to what they are, and I think you'll find... They're pretty different from what we believe, right? The first one is conditional election. God's choice of who is going to be saved is going to be conditioned upon the sinner. Something you do is going to determine whether or not you're one of God's elect, right? Very different from what we would believe. Unlimited atonement. That means Jesus Christ shed His blood for every single member of the human race, right? And I put it this way, really a better way to describe that, they call it unlimited atonement. I think the more accurate theological term for it is ineffectual atonement, right? It's an atonement that didn't really get the job done because Jesus' blood was shed for every man, and yet some men are still going to go to hell. You see that? So there's some people in hell under this doctrine who could say, Christ's blood was shed for me, it didn't do me any good. It didn't get the job done, right? So it's unlimited atonement, but really from a theological perspective, I consider it to be an ineffectual atonement. The third point is, interesting, total depravity. Now oftentimes when you hear people talk about Arminianism, they say, well they don't believe in total depravity. And there is a sense in which that's true, but they actually, in their five articles, they list total depravity as one of the things they believe. You'll find that they kind of create a loophole, though, in how they define the other points. Total depravity. So they do believe that every man has inherited from Adam a state of total depravity, right? They would agree with you on that. But there's more to the story that comes up in the next point. Prevenient grace. Now that may be one that you're not familiar with. Prevenient is a word that just means comes before. It is a grace that comes beforehand. In one sense, you could say we believe in prevenient grace. In the informal sense, we believe that life precedes action. We believe that regeneration precedes the exercise of faith. That is a grace of God that's extended before you believe something, or you love God, or you start to follow God, or those sorts of things. In that sense... We do believe that the regenerating grace of God is a prevenient form of grace. However, when these people say prevenient grace, they're defining a much different doctrine than that. And really what they're talking about is a pre-regenerating grace. So here's a grace of God that enables a man to be able to hear the gospel, an unregenerate man to hear the gospel, to believe on it, and to follow the Lord, right? So their doctrine of prevenient grace, they start by saying we believe in total depravity, and then they say we believe in prevenient grace, which kind of takes total depravity off the table, because we're not in a state of sheer total depravity. We're in a state of prevenient grace, which means any man, even if he's unregenerate, he can hear and believe the gospel unto the salvation of his soul. And they believe that this prevenient grace is extended either to all of humanity or it's extended during proclamations of the gospel so that while you're under gospel preaching you're in a state of prevenient grace wherein you might could make the decision then to become one of God's elect because that election is dependent upon you not upon God so the prevenient grace is the fourth one and then the fifth one is conditional preservation That's kind of crassly described as outrun the devil till you die, right? You can get yourself into a state of salvation, but you better keep it up because at any time between the time you got eternally saved and the time you dropped dead, you could fall out of God's grace and you could end up going to hell anyway. So you could see that those five points would be points that we would very much oppose and and take issue with. The Reformers, the Calvinists of that time, took issue with it, and there was the Synod of Dort, which is a, the Synod is just a meeting, a fancy word for a meeting. They had a meeting. The Calvinists got together, they met in 1618 and 1619, and their meeting was in response to the five articles of the Remonstrance that I just laid out for you. They said, that ain't right. We don't like that at all. We got to have the meeting. So they had a meeting over a couple of years and they brought a bunch of reformed ministers together and that is where the TULIP acronym was born. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Okay, Those were the five items that they came up with. Now each of those... I think they have good reasons to have opposed the five articles of remonstrance. But you need to know that that TULIP acronym was developed as part of that Reformation meeting in response to the remonstrance. So people might come to you and say, you might say, well, we believe TULIP. And they say, oh, you're Reformed, right? You get this a lot. You're one of the Reformed. Well, TULIP is a Reformation doctrine. Well, it is true that the acronym TULIP came out of the Reformation. It is true that our Baptist forefathers saw it, and they said, well, that's a pretty handy little tool to remember things, and we agree with them, for the most part, so we agree with Tulip as well. And in that sense, we have commandeered, or we've said, we like that thing that they said, and and we'll say that too. However, the fact that someone sat down and wrote down something that they believed does not prove that that's the moment when that thing came into existence, In other words, if those Reformers said anything that was right about the truth and about the Word of God, all they were doing is restating something that the Apostle Paul said, that John said, that the Lord Jesus Christ said, that all of the prophets said. And so the thing that's not true is that the doctrines of grace came out of the Reformation. It's true that they were popularized greatly by the Reformation. Lots of publishing and lots of stuff was passed around. But these doctrines exist in the Bible. And one of the greatest problems that arises out of this is that people get so attached to history. They say, well, I see it in history. That's where these doctrines of grace were being talked about. Well, I see it in history too. I'll give you six places I see it in history that predates this by 1,500 years. Right? I mean, I see it in the writings of Paul. How about Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2? There's two places in history where these things are being taught. What about John chapter 6 and chapter 10? There's two more places in history where they're being taught. And what about Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9? I just gave you six chapters of the Bible. These teachings are found in many places across the Bible, but if you just take those six alone and you require that the Bible not contradict itself, you will find that in those six chapters of the Bible alone, these five doctrines are affirmed there, at least as far as we define them. And then I'll get into that in just a minute. So don't trip over the notion that someone says, well, if you believe in Tulip, you're reformed or you're, you're come out of the Reformation or any of those sorts of things. We've just chosen to use that shorthand because we find it handy and it's helpful in that respect. Now, from the time I've been around the old Baptists and um, I'm not entirely sure when this notion was explicitly changed among our people. We have long held that the p in tulip is different from how the reformers define it. They defined it as the perseverance of the saints and we define it as the preservation of the saints. Now, I think we're right to do that. You know what that does though? It's like, "Oh, well, you define it a little different than the reformation." Yeah, we do. And we're right about it. The word perseverance, if you get real technical about it, the word perseverance occurs one time in the Bible. And it is not talking about you're being preserved unto eternal salvation. It's talking about you persevering in prayer for others. It's talking about something that's required of you. And by the way, perseverance always is something that's required of you. And if something is required of you, that is a good work And if it's required of you in order to be eternally saved, then salvation is a function of works. That's just all there is to it. Now, how do the reformers get around that? Well, they get around it by saying, well, God absolutely predestinated that, so that doesn't count. Well, you could use that to justify all of Arminianism if you wanted to, right? So it doesn't really work, and I think it's important. I think it's incredibly important that we identify with the notion of preservation i think perseverance as many define it is kind of like god is kind of like a a hockey player and he's got a hockey stick and you're the puck and he's kind of constantly going along and he's tapping you along and and he's trying to keep you on the straight path here headed toward the goal and eventually he gets you into the goal right it's like an ongoing work of perseverance that god is working with you on he's keeping you going to the straight narrow till you get into the goal That is not what we believe, although we do believe in temporal salvation. God assists, and we have a will, and we need to obey God, and those sorts of things. Preservation is speaking about what Christ accomplished. If He paid the debt and got the job done, if it is finished, then there's nothing that can overturn it. The transaction is done, and you are bound for glory, irrespective of where you may wander in the game of hockey, right? Because the debt was paid and the atonement was effectual. So I think it's very important that we affirm preservation rather than perseverance. So we've already admitted some little departure from the way the Reformers define it. Now, when it comes to the matter of the eye in Tulip, this one is very important. I want to start in John chapter 5 and just give you a little bit of a window into why I think this is so important. John chapter 5, and I'll start in verse 24. I'm going to say this before I read this passage. In the article that I published, the I is typically defined by the Reformers as irresistible grace. And the Bible teaches, and Old Baptists affirm, that God's regenerating grace is utterly irresistible. I don't have an issue with that term irresistible grace. That means when God says, I'm going to regenerate someone, I'm going to speak life into this person. They're going to be made alive. And that person has no vote in the matter. They don't get to say, well, I don't think I want to be made alive by God. I can resist God's grace and therefore will not be regenerated because I have resisted God's grace. We certainly believe in irresistible grace. The grace of regeneration is utterly irresistible. We don't get a say in the matter. However, because of the context we find ourselves in, and the fact that we are constantly being lumped in with the Reformed churches in this very coarse view of how Christianity is split up, I have recommended that we define the I in the way we always speak about it. Immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. If nothing else, maybe this is profitable if you're having a conversation with someone. Maybe you have a friend that's reformed. You know, if you just say, Well, we all believe tulip, then it's like, okay, well, we're gonna eat. <laughs> well, so here's another, here's an opportunity. You know right, We define it a little bit differently. And we have reasons why we do. Immediate Holy Spirit regeneration embraces the idea that grace is irresistible. But it embraces more than that. It says that it's irresistible and it is immediate, which doesn't mean quick. It means there is no mediator in this transaction. Dan Sammons, the old Baptist preacher, is not up here mediating the eternally saving grace of God to an audience of people out here, and somehow through me, through gospel preaching, it gets to one of you and you get born again as a result of it. We don't believe that at all. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's what we believe. And that's talking about in the matter of eternal salvation. Okay? You're talking about God's going to quicken somebody. That's a direct work of God. He's not working through some preacher to do this. And by the way, I'll say this, and it's not very kind, but it's, it's something to consider. If you believe as a preacher that you're in this business and something you're doing is involved in regenerating someone or imparting eternal salvation to them, that is a very dangerous headspace to be in because you can justify just about anything. Hey, I'm trying to get this person into heaven. If I don't do this, they're going to go straight to hell. I'm pretty important. I'm equally important as Jesus Christ in getting any of these people into heaven because we've already admitted through unlimited atonement that Jesus Christ didn't get the job done. Now we've got to have a bunch of human ministers out here mediating to extend the grace to them so that they can then get into heaven. It's a dangerous proposition, honestly, and it's not what we believe. God works directly upon the sinner. In the matter of imparting eternal salvation. And that's what immediate Holy Spirit regeneration intends, right? The Spirit is imparted immediately to someone by God. Now, I've already given you one verse on that. Here's another one, though John chapter 5, and verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that means truly true. I'm telling you the truth. (laughs) This is the Lord speaking, so we ought to believe it, right? I'm telling you the truth. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now the verb tenses in that simple statement make it very clear the order of what transpires here. And I want to look at that very closely. He that heareth my word. That is in the present tense. If you're hearing it right now, and believeth on him that sent me. If you're believing it right now in the present tense, if you hear it and you believe it, hath everlasting life. You got it. Shall not come into condemnation. That's sitting out in the future. That's a promise in the future. But is past from death unto life. You see what it's saying there? I've thought about a way to try to draw this out for people is past, is past completed action with ongoing effects. Let's assume this. Here's someone at the very first instant that they believed, provided you could define such a thing, but give me that for a minute. Let's call it noon. It's high noon, and you believe. You hear, and you believe. At high noon, in the present tense, at high noon, you hear, and you believe. At that moment... You're in the state of, is passed from death unto life. That means at that moment, you had already passed from death unto life. Because the passing occurred in the morning. You see that? I don't know when in the morning it occurred. But it didn't occur at that moment. Because at that moment, you were already in a state of having passed from death unto life. That is precisely what we teach. And that is what the verb tenses of Scripture teach. But it is not very commonly promoted. So you can see this order that undergirds why we believe it the way we do. But look at this. Here's the immediacy of it. That one speaks to the uh, kind of the order of things. But verse 25 gets into the immediacy. Verily, verily, I say unto you, here's more truth. I'm telling you the truth here. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That is the immediate speaking of life into one of God's children. And Jesus is saying, hours coming and now is, this is how it's always worked, is what he's saying. This is how it is. The hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Well, there's a dead person, and they're hearing something. That seems like a contradiction. That's because this is a miraculous speaking of life unto someone who is dead. And it's the Lord doing it directly. Now, many will say, well, I hear the voice of the Son of God. And they'll say, well, that's the voice of the gospel minister. This is the voice of the Son of God. You see, God said, let there be light at one point. And that had some effects in our world, did it not? Was not that the beginning of the creation? Let there be light, and there was light. But there's a huge difference between God saying, let there be light, Moses writing down, let there be light, and me reading it out of the Scripture to you from the pulpit saying, God said, let there be light. Those things have radically different effects in our world. When I read it to you, it doesn't create light. I'm just restating something that God told Moses to write down. So in the same fashion, when God speaks life directly to a sinner, it has its intended effect. And He does it immediately. Now many say, well, that must be the gospel preacher there. I think you're taking liberties with that. And then you go on, as we've often pointed out, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. That's hearing the voice of the Son of God, right? Now, are the people in verse 25 who say, there's a gospel preacher in there, Are they expecting there's going to be gospel preachers declaring these things on the day of resurrection and that's how people are going to come out of the grave? No. This is an immediate fiat of God where He speaks life into someone and they are resurrected from a state of death. It works that way at the final resurrection and it's worked that way in the hearts of every one of His people that believe on Him. You've been given life immediately from God. You might say, I don't know when that happened. Yeah? I don't remember the day I was born, naturally speaking. My earliest memory is from about 18 months, maybe two years old. I don't remember a lot about those things. But that doesn't mean I wasn't alive, right? Our cognition of spiritual things may come a time after. How long after? I don't know. Maybe for some people it's very quick. Maybe for others it comes on a long time thereafter. But I know this. Life is a binary proposition. You're either alive or you're dead. You're either spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. And God speaks that life immediately and directly into His people. And that's why I think primitive Baptists do well to define their tulip and say, you know what, we're not going to say irresistible grace. We're going to say immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. Well, you're changing what the Reformers did. Well, they didn't write the Bible. (laughs) Right? Well, that's just out of line, brother. I mean, that's our old Baptists have a firm tulip for a long time. I've never seen immediate Holy Spirit regeneration in there. Okay. You ever seen the Fulton Confession? They stuck a bunch of notes on the end of that thing. They said, well, we wouldn't sign this unless we could amend it by saying this. All I'm saying is this is what we preach. And it is far more important that we clearly represent what we preach and believe the Bible teaches than it is that we conform more closely to what some reformer came up with 400 years ago. We believe in immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. So I gave you, uh, I gave you six chapters. I'm going to repeat them again here because it, uh, if you want a, uh, kind of something to dive into, I was trying to think about one you know, of the big chapters in the Bible and there's a lot of ways you could go with this, kind of depends on how you think about it. You' probably find a lot of uh, debate among old Baptist elders about which if you had to pick six chapters of the Bible, which ones would you pick? And uh, I don't want to stir that controversy up. but I would say this: these are six that teach those things: John chapter six and chapter 10, Romans chapter eight and chapter nine, and Ephesians chapter one and chapter two. Probably why we end up doing a fair amount of preaching from those areas. So let me summarize this for you. That's probably about all you could take for today. That's pretty heavy on an overview of history. But I kind of wanted you to see how you fit into all of that. It can be confusing to people, people who haven't kind of heard the whole story. They don't understand how we relate to the TULIP acronym. We have chosen to use it because we saw some brothers and sisters in Christ who don't really agree with everything we teach who came up with something pretty handy in terms of remembering certain doctrines and and helping to remember what's core to the idea of the doctrines of grace. And I think we should use it to the extent that we can, but I don't have any problem with trying to refine how some of those letters are defined. And I think the immediate Holy Spirit regeneration one is very important. I'll say this, in my efforts to teach what we believe to other people, particularly people who have a Reformed background, this is the area you have to get into. Reformed people seem as though they agree with us on just about everything. If you take that coarse view of planet Christianity that says there's three big land masses, well, yeah, we're all kind of on the same land mass, but there's differences, right? The Sahara Desert is very different from Pyrenees. So there's differences that can be laid out, and this is one that's really important. I think it's one that a lot of Christians have trouble with because the movement that has been so popularized in the last couple of hundred years has convinced everyone that if men aren't doing gospel ministry, that there's going to be fewer people in heaven. That's really the issue. And it's very disturbing. So if you've been raised in that, you think, well, gosh, if we stop doing this work, there's going to be all these people going to hell. Well, what did Jesus do, right? Right. What is He still doing? He's regenerating people. Many people say, well, you just look through the New Testament. You see these people preaching. It's talking about they preached and they were saved. And those who were ordained in life, you know, they they were being saved and those sorts of things. That's where our doctrine of time salvation comes into play and allows us to explain that more clearly. But this issue is very hard for many people to get over. However, if you look in the Bible, first of all, the entire Old Testament teaches a whole bunch of people who were the saints of God who never heard the explicit New Testament gospel. So, you got to deal with that. Abraham was a guy sitting in Ur, didn't know anything about anything. And God came to him and called him out of that place and he had a life that was, you know, trying to follow and serve God. Well, how did that happen? There was no missions movement, no gospel preaching, none of that going on. God finds his people. And he saves his people. How do you have a good Samaritan? Someone who's in a totally messed up religion, and yet here's the Lord says, here's somebody who's got the love of God in his heart. His mind may be messed up. He's got some bad ideas in his head, but he's got the love of God in his heart, and he's doing the right thing in a way that the so-called orthodox religious people of his day were unwilling to do. How do you have that? He didn't get it from a Samaritan minister. Because never, those people didn't have the gospel. They didn't have anything right, hardly. He got it because of immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. He was taught something in his heart, had the Word of God written on his heart. So TULIP is a helpful tool. The acrostic is from the Reformation. And we have chosen to adopt it in some respects because it's handy and it's uh, memorable. And it does speak to five things that differentiate us from the broader world of Christianity but those doctrines, when properly defined, they weren't invented in the Reformation. That's a falsehood that is commonly promoted out there. It was like, oh, everything was Roman Catholicism. And then the Reformation came along and we came up with all these doctrines. And, and that's when all that started. The doctrines of grace extend from the time the Bible was written. Paul talks about them. He explains, these things are explained in the Bible itself. And it's funny to me in having talked to many people who are Reformed, they'll say, well, I don't see where people before the Reformation were clearly teaching all these doctrines the way we do after Calvin and whatnot. And they'll say, sola scriptura. Nothing but Scripture matters. Okay, well, all those teachings of the Reformation are not Scripture, first of all. So that eliminates your first set of evidence. And second of all, The doctrines that were good and promoted in the Reformation exist in the Bible, sola scriptura, because the Apostle Paul taught them, the Lord Jesus Christ taught them, his prophets taught them, etc. So it's interesting to me that a sola scriptura group will rely upon church history to validate what they believe, and then they'll ignore the fact that these things are clearly taught in Scripture. It's kind of silly, but I think provided we properly define those things, they can be helpful. The P and the I, I think we do well to redefine them in a way that's more consistent with what we believe. In the case of the I, uh, we believe in irresistible grace. There's no doubt about that. But we believe in immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. God does all the work. And the purpose of gospel ministry is not to impart eternal life to people, we're supposed to be teaching them baptizing them, making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the church's purpose is. It's supposed to be giving you a family in the here and now of like-minded believers who can love and support one another and continue to march along the path of discipleship together. That's really the purpose. We're not up here eternally saving anybody. The Lord Jesus Christ saved every one of His sheep and He declared it is finished. We're just up here telling you that and inviting you to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that's a blessing to you. If it is, you have been immediately regenerated by the Holy Spirit, whether you recognize it or not. And that should be a cause for great celebration. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street, in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.